The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick up again where we've been going through verse by verse and chapter by chapter throughout this letter. And this is one of those chapters that I wish that I was not a, a verse by verse expository pastor. This is one of those chapters I would love to avoid. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will understand why, and you're going to understand it in just a minute. You know, my mother prepared me very well for boot camp. How many of you have had military experience when uh, you were in boot camp and you were in the military? And you learned very early that when somebody came into the room that was of a higher rank, or authority than you were, you stopped whatever you were doing, and you popped two to attention, you didn't move a thing, you didn't bat an eye, and you couldn't wait till they said, as you were, meaning go back to the condition that you were, or continue on in that way. And if I put an umbrella statement over 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's what he's telling to these Christians. He's telling them, listen, you have come to Christ. You've been transformed by Christ, made a new creation in Christ. But it doesn't mean that you have to change the status of the life that you were living before you came to know Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that there were some things that we were participating in that were ungodly when we came to Christ. Yes, those things we needed to change, but as, as far as your status in life, remain there because God wants to use you where you are. This first area that Paul begins to talk with these uh, Corinthians, really in response to some questions that they had written to him, as Paul alludes to in chapter 16, that they had questions, now that we're believers, how do we live that out within the culture that we're in? And speaking of the culture, we know from previous weeks that that city of Corinth was a very debased, sexual-driven, immoral, corrupt, gross culture. And all of a sudden, these believers who had participated in that lifestyle were now coming to Christ and getting saved. And it created a lot of confusion and a lot of mess within this church. You remember in chapter 5 and 6, chapter 5, uh, Paul addresses the guy that's a member of the church, and, and the church is kind of acting like nothing's happening when he is sleeping with his father's wife, incest going on, and Paul has to address that. He has to address the gross sexual immorality that everybody's jumping in bed with everybody else, and, and some of them had even undoubtedly come out of worship of un, of so-called gods where they would go to temples and participate in temple prostitution as an act of worship. And can you imagine coming Sunday morning and realize there's somebody across the way that maybe she's just come to know Christ and you're like, wow, I was with her in the temple a month ago. That's a condition that he was dealing with here. And so he writes this in chapter 7 to begin to clarify in particular some of the areas that we deal with now more and more in our culture, and that is related to marriage and sexual purity within the body of Christ. And what God has called us to, not only sexual purity before we're married, but then sexual purity after we're married. So, if you are under 18, if you have a child under 18 here this morning, this is a PG sermon, okay? 
And I was a little bit embarrassed to begin. If I, if I could avoid any chapter, I'd avoid this chapter. But I thought about it. You know what? If we can't talk about these things in church, my goodness, we're, then we're listening to the message of the culture, and it is all messed up. Can I say amen to that? And so God has some things to say about that here in this chapter, so we're going to address that. Follow along with me what Paul writes, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters and the manners about which you wrote... You'll notice a quotation mark. It was a quote from them that they were stating, Paul, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, let me just translate that for you. It was an idiom in those days to say sexual relations with a woman. It would cover the context of marriage. So they were saying, Paul, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife, is what they were saying. He says, but... Paul responded to him, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and, 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 and another of another. But to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, Lord, the Holy Spirit would speak to us from your word this morning, God. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help me to make clarity of this. Lord, I know that all questions won't be answered in this area. But God, we trust the Holy Spirit to give us direction and guidance. Lord, as we desire to be disciples of yours and to follow your word and be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've already stated Corinth was a sexually charged city. It was everywhere. And so if you can imagine, even in our culture, where some of us may have come to Christ out of living a sexual, craved, immoral life, that once we become Christians, it is a huge draw because everywhere we turn in our culture, it seems as though sex sells. Right? Can't watch the Super Bowl without it, or some of you watch the Super Bowl because of it. It's everywhere we turn. And, and Paul, addressing this in this church, says, listen, now that you're believers, yes, you turn from that, but don't take it to the extreme. Because some of them had felt that because they're living in that culture, in a, in a, a sex-driven culture, that even within the confines of marriage, the only way to remain pure was to choose to live a celibate lifestyle where God had not gifted or called them to live that way. And particularly those who were in marriage relationships. The other thing that was going along with this was that somehow or another, these Corinthians got in their mind that 
they had been given this special gift of celibacy within the, within the confines of marriage. And because they were practicing celibacy, they had themselves in this higher classification of super spirituality. Now, we may not deal with that much in, in our Christian culture, but we have segments within the body of Christ that have the idea that if they abstain from certain things, if they do certain practices, if they do this kind of diet, if they eat this kind of honey, if they read this kind of Bible, etc., 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 that somehow or another they are elevated to a super spiritual reality. And I would remind them that pride comes before the fall. Amen. You see, the fact is, when you and I came to know Christ, when we were born again and given the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, and Christ himself who lives in us, listen, you cannot get any more spiritual in that sense than God has already made you. You see, he has made you the righteousness of God in Christ when you were born again. He has justified you in that he looks at you just as if you had never sinned. He has sanctified you, meaning that He has made you holy, and you can't make yourself any more holy. God has done it all for you. Somebody say hallelujah that He's done it for me. And so He's writing to this culture and saying, listen, don't get super spiritual. Now, in the context that He's writing, they had four classifications of married life in the city of Corinth. Some of them are similar to what we may have today. But the first qualification for marriage was what was called a tent companionship, tent companionship. It wasn't where the guy went out hunting in the woods and took his lady along with him in the, in the tent. But what it was is that slave owners and many of the early Christians were former slaves or were currently slaves. That slave owners, because they owned people as property, would take one slave and unite them in marriage to another slave and they would dwell in tents, and it was the, the slave owner's prerogative to determine who stayed together and who didn't stay together. So the slave owner, at the whim of his own emotion, may decide one day, well, I'm going to take you and I'm going to sell you to this slave owner over here because he needs a companion for this gentleman over here. And so people were bought and sold in that sense. And it was legal in the city of Corinth. Can you imagine the second type of marriage, what would be we would refer to as our common law marriage, that if a couple cohabitated together for a year, then in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of the city of Corinth, they were considered to be married. The third way was an arranged marriage, which happens very broadly in many other countries around the world. And if you think about it, it's one of the sickest forms of marriage that you could ever imagine. Because the father generally would take his daughter and for his own personal gain would sell his daughter to another man of means for his son and it was arranged marriage and the father of the bride was paid off by the father of the, the groomsman or the groomsman himself and he would gain personal advantage in that. That's kind of modern day Sex trafficking, isn't it? And so their arranged marriage, this was happening there in Corinth. And then lastly would be the traditional or standard traditional marriage that we would have today. So it's not surprising that there was great concern and there was great confusion there in the city of Corinth. And so Paul begins to deal with it. The first thing I want us to see is an observation that we make here in verse 1. Look again at verse 1. Concerning the matters that you wrote to me about, 
And you said that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or his wife. Now, Paul is not condoning singleness or celibacy or condoning is not the right word. Paul is not elevating this over marriage. He's just simply saying that if you choose to be single and you have been given the gift to live that kind of life, then that's great. He's not forbidding marriage here in this context. Many will take this to say, well, you know, Paul says that it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Therefore, I've determined I'm going to live this celibate life. No, it's not more spiritual. it's, It's okay. Paul is simply saying that. So he's not condoning it. He's not condemning it. And we have to take that in context of verse 32, because Paul writes here in verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried, somebody laughed over here. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And Paul alludes in this chapter that there's some impending situation that they're facing currently. And Paul says, in light of this situation that we're facing, we're not sure what that was. It could have been individual persecution that had begun to break out among the church. Or Paul, like the early apostles, believed that Jesus could come at any time and saying, listen, don't be, don't be entangled by these other things that cause anxiety. And where your focus will be on that, in light of the fact that Jesus is about to come back, just remain single and get on with the business of the Lord, right? And so he's not condemning, he's not condoning, both are okay. And as a matter of fact, we might take from this where Paul says that it is good for a man to have, not to have sexual relations with a woman, that Paul somehow is giving a contradictory view of what he has already spoken of in other letters about marriage. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, God had said this when he created Adam and Eve. He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Paul had a very high view of marriage as scripture has a very high view of marriage. As a matter of fact, when Paul's writing this, those Jews that may have been among the congregation there in in Corinth would have said, wait a minute, Paul's saying it's okay to be single. This to a Jew is almost heresy because they felt that it was their duty and their obligation to get married and procreate and produce a godly generation. But the Gentile, they're sitting there thinking, man, celibacy is the only way. Celibacy is the only way to remain pure In this context, you see, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, his view, really his high view of marriage, if you will turn there with me, he writes this. He says, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Notice the qualification there, as to the Lord. You see, submission for men and women comes first as we submit ourselves to the Lord. You'll notice in verse 21 of this passage in chapter 5, he starts it off really by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And this phrase, wives submit to your husbands, has been one of the most abused things in the body of Christ, one of the top abused things. Listen, it is a mutual submission, and submission does not mean that you are less than, does not mean that you're a doormat, does not mean that you're demeaned, but it simply is a role that God has given, and He's placed order there in there. And the responsibility, I would say, to husbands today is that the responsibility bears on our shoulders, not on the wives. So he says, husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I love what Sandy says. Sandy says, my wife Sandy, says that it is is not difficult at all to live in the role of submission as long as Jamo is loving me like Christ loved the church. Yesterday, I wasn't loving her like Christ loved the church. (laughs) Amen to that? You see, men, it's our responsibility. I heard somebody say one time years ago in a marriage conference we were attending, he said to the crowd, he said, guys, he said, if your wife is not loving you the way that you think she should love you, it's your fault because you're not loving her as Christ loved the church. I took issue with that. I since learned he's true. And so he, he calls the husband. This is his high view of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Jesus love us? By willingly laying his life down for us, serving us so that because we are his bride. And so Paul has a has a very high view of marriage. When we look at verse 2, we would kind of have the idea that Paul is stating here that the condition of marriage is so that we can gratify these sexual desires that we have. But that is not the condition, he says in verse 2. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman his own body. His, His own body. And each woman her own husband. Now, when you think about that, and you say, Paul, are you saying that the reason that we're to get married is to gratify these sexual desires that we have? No, Paul's not saying that at all. You see, if that's what we were reduced to as human beings, then we're no different than animals in the animal kingdom. Our culture has seemed to have twisted sexuality in that we are nothing more than animals going out to try to devour and satisfy for our own needs what we want. That's not what God has intended within the confines of the marriage union. Can I get an amen on this? This is uncomfortable for me. Can I be honest with you? I'm blushing a little bit. I don't know if you can see. The message that the culture portrays to us is a message that has been hijacked by the enemy, and I think it's one of the greatest threats to family and marriage within our culture today. Because he has taken what has been given to us as a God-given desire for sexual expression between a husband and a wife in the union of marriage. And he has hijacked it and perverted it 
And it's one of the leading contributors to break up in the family in this nation today. You see, there are reasons that are given in Scripture for marriage. And the reason for marriage is not to satisfy our sexual desire. One of the biggest jokes among groomsmen at weddings, well, you know what it is. That it seems to be that's the only reason the groom's marrying the bride. That's contrary to God's biblical view of marriage. Marriage is not instituted so that I get out of my partner what I want, but marriage is instituted so that I give all of myself to my partner in union, and it's all about giving, it's not about taking. So the scriptures line out several reasons for marriage to us. Number one is this, that it was given to us for procreation. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. The second reason, as we've already stated in Genesis 2.18, is God has given us marriage for partnership. He said, it is not good. That the man should be alone. The older I get and the longer I, I progress in our marriage relationship, we'll have 35 years this May. I, I tell young guys all the time, listen, these are the payoff years. Finally, the kids that are out of the house, they're raised, the grandkids are a lot easier. And, and our marriage is just like any other marriage. There are pressures in marriage. Can anybody say amen to that? Not only pressures, sometimes there are just very difficult times in marriage. But the payoff is persevering in and through that, depending on the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts to make it the best that it can be, regardless of the situations, and then realizing, you know what? I see the ones across the aisle that I'm going to be at that state, and it's going to be nice to have a partner at that age. So God's given us marriage for partnership. The third reason, as we've already seen, is that marriage is to be a picture to, to the world, those who are outside of the body of Christ, of the union and the relationship that the body of Christ has to Jesus. You see, he communicates himself to us as, as the bridegroom, and we are his bride. This last week, I happened to see several posts on Facebook. May must be the month of married uh, weddings. I don't know. But everybody's sharing on, on the, um, what is it, Throwback Thursday? Throwback Thursday, their, their wedding pictures. And you look at the bride, she's all pretty, the Groomsman, as much as he's tried to make himself look good, he's still ugly. <laughs> the first wedding I ever performed, a lady by the name of Carol Engel, some of you may know Carol. She was the director of the wedding, and I was young, and I had this nice suit that I had bought ready to do the wedding, and she looks at me in her southern expression. She says, John Mark, you look so handsome in your black suit. And I'm sure you're going to do a good job. But remember, today is not about you. It's about the bride. <laughs> she turned back and said, don't preach a sermon. I said, okay. <laughs> it's about the bride. Listen, 
For Jesus, it's all about the bride. And so God desires that a world around us can look at married couples and who are believers, and while we still have challenges in that, they see that there's something different. And what will be noticeably different if we're fulfilling the roles that God has called us to in marriage where husbands are laying his life down for his wife as Christ loved the church. And she's responding in kind to that. You look at our culture today, and if you were, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of statistics, but over the last 30 and even more recent years, you see the numbers beginning to increase as as there is a higher breakup of abandonment in the family. You see, socially, the trends and the breakdown of our culture increase at the same rate. In other words, God has given marriage and God has given family for no other sense than a stability in culture. That where that is stripped away, you have all manners of chaos. And I'm not saying this, if you're in this situation today, to make you feel guilty, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to communicate. What I'm trying to communicate is, listen, marriage is worth fighting for. Lastly, I like this one. He's given us marriage for pleasure. Listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 5. He, he gives a warning there to, to the man not to look at the, at the, the adulterous woman. But then he says in verse 15... He says, drink water from your own cistern. In other words, buddy, stay at home, right? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? In other words, should you go around whoring around all over the community? No! Can I talk frank with you this morning? Let them be For yourself alone and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. What's he saying? It's been given for pleasure. You ever read the book of Song of Solomon? Now, theologians have tried to make it say something else because they're, they're, they're like, how, how could God write a book about an intimate relationship between husband and wife? But that's exactly why he placed it there. I always jokingly say, Sandy and I have always tried to read Song of Solomon and devotions together, but we never get past the third chapter. <laughs> You ought to try that sometimes, David. <laughs> He's blushing down here. For those who are literal, though, I would recommend that you not read these verses to your wife in the explicit way that they're written. For as a matter of fact, Solomon says, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stone, in which are hung thousands of shields. Your lips, my bride, a drip honey, honey and milk under your tongue. Can you imagine that? And boy, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. 
What am I saying? Listen, there are intentions for marriage, and they're good intentions that God has given us. Thirdly, in verse 3, there's an obligation that He lines out for us in our marriage relationship. I was shocked in the first service. Let me just say this. Because the responses I got were not the responses I thought I would get. I thought I might have men coming to me to share, and you know, this is an issue. And you, 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 there, were, there were three responses that came for service. You know who they were? Wives. So this cuts both ways, and not only in a physical giving, but an emotional giving as well. And, and Paul writes here, he just lays it out on the line. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, there's a problem in our culture, and it's this. Singles are living as though they are married within the context of sexuality in our culture. And married people are living as though they are single within the context of our culture. Because just because we're under the same roof does not mean we're together as one. Right? And he's saying, listen, if I could sum up what he's saying without really getting into details, the focus in here is not on rights. It doesn't give me the right to go to my wife and say, honey, put out because it belongs to me. The focus is on saying, this belongs to her. So I am going to live to serve and give to her regardless of what her needs are because that is what Christ has called me to do. Do you understand that? So it's not taking what is mine. It's giving to her what belongs to her. I wish you were here to say that, hear that. Honey, it's yours. <laughs> it's... Listen, it's a heart attitude. Are you hearing me? It's not a physical thing. It's a heart attitude. And, and what happens where the enemy twists this in a marriage is he makes it an obligatory kind of thing. And then what happens as God has intended for sexuality to bring a closeness and an intimacy in relationship, it becomes a bartering tool. I brought you roses. <laughs> you don't bring me flowers anymore. No. Or you hadn't done what I asked you to do. Why do I come in and dirty dishes are in the sink? Because mom always did them. That's why. You know, it's got... Well, therefore, I'm going to use this tool to... Boy, it's such a device of the enemy. And the fact is, is that sexual drive is a biological fact that God has given to us. And the enemy knows that. 
And the enemy says, man, I've got a great opportunity in this marriage here because there's this division of heart and spirit with them, and now it's come to the, you know, the sex has been cut off or it's being manipulated. And I'm going to lay a temptation out here because I know the passion is real. I know the drive is real. I know she wants to be fulfilled emotionally to lead into this, and I know he has a physical sex drive, and I can lay this here, and, man, I can get him. Right? And so Paul's saying, look, the safeguard in this is recognize that it's a reality that we have these desires and recognize the reality that there is an enemy, Satan himself, out there who desires to destroy marriage and wreck families and mess up the next generation of kids so that It is a thing that should be habitual, and it's not a sporadic duty. He says, listen, he says, only for a time should you agree together not to have sexual relations so that you might devote yourselves to prayer. I thought about that. And Tim, you, you probably experienced in your counseling as well. When couples come and that's an issue they're dealing with, I have never had someone tell me if it's been six months, 12 months, two years, five years. Well, the reason is, is because we got a lot of praying to do. That's never the reason that's given. And Paul says, look, except for a time of that. Peter goes on to say, hey man, don't give enemy away so that he might be able to come in and be able to hinder your prayers. Let me wrap this up. Whatever state that God has called you to live in, whether it is single or married, live in that state to the fullness to bring Him glory, to honor Him in that so that He might use you effectively and that you might experience greater joy in Him. Honestly, we have a number of marriages that are in trouble here. You may know marriages that may not be here at this church that are in trouble but are strained. You may be in a marriage yourself that's strained. Or trouble. And the way I'd like to close this service this morning is to do this. Is that during this closing song, as Jenny comes just to just to play the song I Surrender All. I want to ask you to pray either A for your own marriage or the marriage of someone you know that is facing extreme difficulty. You may know a single person that's facing extreme difficulty. Maybe they're having challenges in remaining pure because we're sexual beings. Excuse me, that was a misstatement. We're not sexual beings. We're human beings created with a sex drive. Pray for them. 
And the last thing I would encourage us to do as a body is, is to listen, share vulnerably and honestly with one another within your small groups, within your discipleship groups. This is such an area that the church too long has not spoken of and been honest and candid about. And I believe as we begin to minister that way to one another, we'll see God do some great healing within the body of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.